What is going on? It is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to chat with the legend Kevin Martin of the band Candlebox over Zoom video. It was so incredible to chat with Kevin, not only because I've been a fan of Candlebox for a very long time, but the band just released their final album. They're on their final tour ever as Candlebox. Kevin actually says in the interview he he's done recording records, just wants to be a dad, be a husband, and he'll play some shows for charity going forward. But uh, he's done. He's really done. So it was really cool to hear his story and hear his journey in music from where he was born and raised to how he got into music, the first bands he was in, actually Candlebox being the very first band that he sang in. They had a different name prior to Candlebox, but he talks about the massive music scene in Seattle and the band kind of coming up during that time. The incredible success of their song Far Behind. He recaps really his entire career, which is just so exciting to kind of hear it from Kevin. 30 years as a band, and we dive deep into the new album, which is called The Long Goodbye, really bookending Kevin's entire career. Great conversation with Kevin. You can watch the interview on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be amazing if you subscribe to our channel. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, it would be incredible if you follow us there as well and hook us up with a five-star review. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're Bringing It Backwards with Candlebox. Awesome. I'm Adam, and uh, this is about you and your journey in music, and we'll talk about the the new album, obviously. Cool. Sweet. Um, well, first off, I always ask, uh, born and raised uh, from Illinois originally. Is that what I read? Yeah, I was born in Elgin, Illinois. Um, my father and um, mother and my entire family were all born there. No way. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, so did you have like, like your parents have extended family? Did you have like cousins and aunts and uncles and everything around you as well? Yeah, I've got, um, seven cousins, three aunts. I had a couple uncles, but they're gone. Uh, yeah, I got uh, actually a lot of family. Every time I play either in Chicago or Rockford or something, there's about 20 or 30 that show up. So it's, uh, it's quite, wow. quite a, quite a clan. Yeah, it's great. That's amazing. Like for uh, holidays and stuff was everybody together yeah yeah that's cool yeah my family moved uh from ohio to san diego i was born in san diego my mom was eight months pregnant when they moved uh but so we didn't have any family like that around so i'm always like envious of people that got to like kind of grow up with the big family around and have all the aunts and uncles and everything uh, yeah it's pretty nice pretty nice cool um what about music you come from a musical household at all or was that something you picked up on your own no, my father was a jazz musician. My mom was a standard singer. Um, wow. My brother, Dennis, played drums. My brother, Brian, played saxophone. My sister played flute. Um, oh, yeah, music, very musical music, household. Yeah, music was always on. Um, if I came home from school, my mom was a, my mom was a housewife. So um, music was always in the house. There was always something going on. There was uh, we went to a Baptist church. So there's a lot of music there. And sure. yeah, it was it was always around me. I, I was very, very fortunate. 
Wow. Uh, you said Dow is a, as a jazz musician. What did he, what instrument did he play? He played all the woodwind and all the brass. Um, so cool. my dad was born in 1922 uh, in Chicago and, and he wanted to go to a Jesuit Catholic school. Um, so he kind of started playing in bands actually when he was quite young, 13 and 14 years old to kind of cover those costs and things. So um, he was a very accomplished player. He um, he sat in uh, several times with Dizzy Gillespie and and those back in the in the forties and fifties yeah. when he came back from the war. So yeah, he was um, he was you know one of those cats that got a phone call if they needed a clarinet player, if they needed a sax player, if they needed a trumpet player, trombone player, whatever. Wow, and it sounds like one of your siblings plays. Uh, you say saxophone. Or did my brother saxophone? played saxophone? Yeah, he he well he only played it in high school. He didn't continue to play it. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> And that the funny thing is, like, none of us really knew, um, none of the children knew that my father was that accomplished of a player um, until the, kind of my brother came home from school with an alto saxophone and my dad happened to be home from a business trip. He's like, oh, let me see that thing. And and he picked it up and just started going off on it. We were like, what is that? Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> so he, yeah, so he obviously wasn't, didn't have one at the house that he was playing regularly or anything. He just kind of stopped doing it. Well, when he met my mother, um, he, my mom is about 18 years in age, younger than him. So when he met her, he decided to kind of give up music. He was being, he was a cop on the South side of Chicago oh, wow. um, and he, and he wanted to, you know, be married and have, you know, have kids. And, um, and so he gave up music and, and just focused on sales. Wow. Uh, for you though, did you, I mean, that's not knowing that your dad was, was this incredible jazz player was, uh, did you go to, um, saxophone or like a instrument like that when you first started Were guitar, the first instrument you learned, like, where did you start off? No, I started with French horn. Oh, wow. And okay. then, um, yeah. And then I moved on to, um, then I played, uh, alto saxophone, then clarinet and then flute because I wanted to keep moving down to instruments that were smaller and easy to carry. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and then I picked up drums. I picked up drums when I was 10 years old. And that was the biggest mistake of my life because I fell madly in love with it. And that's all I wanted to be was a drummer. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's funny that you said the piece about uh, going down instruments because you didn't want to carry Because I, when we were offered an instrument when I was in fifth grade to play um, in fourth, you went in to see the band, you know, kind mm -hmm. of the orchestra play. And this kid put his mouthpiece mouth all over the whole clarinet and blew into it. And I was like, and it just made this obnoxious sound. I'm like, that's what I want to play. <laughs> and not yeah. only that, you could fit it in your backpack. And my neighbor played trombone. And he had to carry this giant trombone home when we walk home from school. I'm like, oh, oh man. man, I'm glad I chose, <laughs> glad I chose the yeah. clarinet. Yeah, fourth grade. I mean, you know, the size of me carrying a French horn case around was hilarious. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, I can't so. imagine try to get on a school bus with that fucking thing. You know, it was ridiculous. But, yeah. <laughs> oh man. So 10, you said you started playing drums. Were you still living in uh, Illinois at that time or had you moved? No, no, I was, I was living in Kansas. Um, my, my dad took a job with a salt company um, like right around 1974, 70, 73, 74. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so he moved us to St. Joe, Missouri, and then from St. Joe, Missouri to Kansas City, Kansas, and then Hutchison, Kansas. So in Hutchison is where I kind of started playing drums. And that was where I got really focused on what I wanted to do musically. And, and then he took a job in San Antonio um, right after seventh grade. So we moved to San Antonio, Texas when I started eighth grade. And that's where I kind of continued with the, with the drumming and rock and roll. Okay. So did, were you playing in bands when you were living in Kansas prior to moving or did you kind of start? No, just, a, just a school band. Yeah. Oh, school band. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. None, none of the other kids, um, 
like I didn't have any friends that played rock guitar or anything like that. So um, it was, yeah, it was really just about um, playing in the band at school and, and, you know, um, trying to get that first chair or whatever it was, you know, it's, sure. it, that was, for me, it was the competition of my brother. Brian was, was first chair saxophone in the sixth grade band. So I oh. wanted to be first chair. Um, I wanted to be first chair sax player in, in uh, fourth grade band. So, okay. <laughs> Which, I don't think that even exists anymore. I don't think they go back to band like that in, in school anymore. It's kind of sad. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure. I know my, I have a, a seven-year-old son in elementary school, but I don't, I don't think that they have like a band that's in, you know, fourth no. or fifth grade. It's, it's no. yeah, unfortunate. Um, so, School of Rock, that's about it. Right, right. Exactly. So when you moved to Texas, were you, and, and you're still playing drums, obviously, was that when you kind of started a band or is that when you first started playing with other people? That's kind of when I just started jamming with friends at my house. I didn't really start a band until I moved to Seattle. Um, that was, that was in 84, 85. I can't remember. Okay. Um, and I started playing with some kids at my high school. Um, we had a, a band called Wool. And that was in Seattle. You moved to Seattle for high school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. Middle of my so sophomore year. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. You moved around quite a bit then. I mean, to leave yeah. in middle school and then leave again in, in the middle of high school. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, I lived in been... nine cities by the time I was, I think of, by the time I was 10 years old, I'd already lived in nine cities. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Um, so were you still playing drums when you moved to, uh, to Seattle to play in the band when you, when you joined yeah. the band, were you the drummer? Yeah. And I didn't stop until Candlebox. So I was, I was a drummer all the way up until I started singing in Candlebox. Wow. Were you songwriting prior to that or was Candlebox kind of your first effort at this? Candlebox was my, well, I mean, I had written some stuff with my band, um, but, you know, but it's mostly punk rock. That's all I was playing. Like, you know, my influences are the clash and bad brains and dead <laughs> Kennedys and butthole sure. surfers and black flags. So that's what I grew up on. Um, so, you know, being in a punk band was like really how hard does it, you know, is it to write a punk song? But um yeah, Candlebox was my first like real experience is like writing lyrics and and being a songwriter. Okay, and were you so you obviously could play guitar at that point, but it was just to songwrite. No, I didn't or, start. Or I didn't start oh. playing guitar until I was twenty seven or twenty eight. No way. Okay. Wow. So you were just writing what lyrics that you'd kind of pitch to the other guys in the band. Yeah, like, I could pick up a guitar. And, okay. I could pick up a guitar and I could play chords. Um, uh -huh. but like, I didn't, I didn't know, you know, really how to, to write a song. I, I've always kind of played by ear, even though I could read music. Um, when it came time to like, for me to work on melodies and stuff, I would pick up a guitar and I would work around the melodies within, uh, what Pete was writing, what Barty was writing, um, to kind of give myself, you know, direction for, for melodic movement and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so I, like, I think the first song I actually wrote was Blossom. Um, which I wrote, you know, by myself entirely. And, and, you know, it's a very simple chord progression, but it's a drop D tuning and, and it makes it really easy to move around in that. So that's, that's kind of why all the stuff that I write is in kind of more of the major, major movements with minor falls and, and not the intricacies of like a change or, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, cover me or something like that. Wow. And so what made you decide that you wanted to, you know, front the band? I mean, coming from the, uh, being a drummer uh, were you just writing songs? You've met some people that are, were playing or met a drummer and you're like, Oh, maybe I'll try to write and sing. Well, I never, I still don't want to be the lead singer of this band. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I never wanted it. I, I, you know, I'm the reluctant lead singer of a rock and roll band. I, I always wanted to be a drummer. I got stuck with this gig, um, 
Scott Ricardo, our drummer, uh, was friends with this guy named Rick Vaughn, who um, was writing songs. And, and Rick had worked at Reciprocal Recordings in Seattle, so he'd worked with Jack and Dino and stuff. So he'd been around the block for a while, um, and they had some songs. And Scott had heard me sing it at um, my 16th birthday party. Oh wow! That he came, yeah, that he came to with a friend. And um, so he reached out to me. I was working at a shoe store at the time, John Fluvog. And uh, he said, hey, you know, I'm working on this stuff with this guy named Rick Vaughn. Would you be interested in singing? And I was like, oh, I'm not a singer. I play drums. And he's like, well, I've heard you sing. And would you come and do it? So um, that was this band called Uncle Duke. And that was the beginning of the, the rest of my life as a rock and roll singer. Wow. Okay. So you, so Uncle Duke was the first band and then eventually did that become Candlebox? Candlebox. Years yeah, later? Candlebox. Okay. Yeah, about, about a year and a half later, um, Rick left and we became Candlebox. So that was 1990 when Uncle Duke form, was started and then Pete joined in 91 and we became Candlebox in October of 91. Today, hip-hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire. Fire, yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums, and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip-hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday. Yes, and you brought me to Sade, life-size cardboard cutout. <laughs> this is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop. Listen to Class of 88 wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge the entire series right now on the Amazon Music app or Audible. Wow. And did you just from there, was it just playing around uh, Seattle? Like, how did you guys get your start? Well, we couldn't play. Um, we couldn't play any of the clubs because our bass player wasn't 21. So in Seattle, um, back in the 90s, 80s and 90s, um, you had to be 21 years old to play in a bar. So we played a lot of house parties, a lot of friends, um, garages. Um, there were some all ages venues we played um out in, on the east side and some stuff in west seattle but yeah our first rock and roll gig at a bar wasn't until um i think uh like june june of 92 oh, okay. uh, i think it was like our first gig at a at a bar that's when barty turned 21 so um yeah we we played played a lot of house parties oh my gosh i mean and to be in seattle in a rock band in the early nineties. I mean, that's when everything was going off in, in Seattle. Yeah, that must've been a pretty crazy. exciting time. Yeah. It was, it would I mean, it was insane. You know, it's uh, every single day there was, a, a, you know, another band to see, or there was another club to go to, or, or, you know, or, you know, the singles movie um, kind of made everybody move there. And um, it was, it was pretty incredible. I will tell you though, from 1984 till 1990, that's what I kind of, really remember about that that scene was that rapid kind of growth that was happening and all the cool rock bands that were coming out you know just that kind of incubator that was happening from 84 to 90 was just you know incredible it produced so many great bands and and the city was really really open to it and as were the fans you know very very supportive 
the University of Washington would constantly um, allow, you know, the kids to, to, to you know, have Husker Du come play or something like that. And you'd have like maybe Mother Lovebone open or Soundgarden wow. or something like that. So, yeah, it was it was all, you know, it was all pretty cool back then. Wow. Um, so once you guys, you know, you're you're you can play in clubs, right? You're 21 years old. Everyone in the band's 21. And then you you put out what a EP uh, was that the first thing you guys put a release? And then was that what kind of eventually landed you, you know, record deals and in, in the start of the success of the band? Well, no, we had to um, in order to play in the city, you had to have a demo tape. So oh, we actually did. Okay. We did a cassette tape and it had um, had 10 songs on it. Um, and we recorded that Easter Sunday uh, of 92 at Bob Lang studio um, in Seattle, um, with Kelly Gray, our, our producer. Um, and that was basically just to get gigs. And then two of the songs from that demo tape far behind and you ended up making the album because we, when we tried to re-record them, um, when we made the debut, it, we didn't capture the same energy because at that point we'd been playing them so much. So we had kind of altered them and, um, and, you know, as, as the more you start playing a song, the more it grows and changes. So, we felt that the demo from from Bob Lang's of Easter Sunday was better than um, the, the new recording. So um, that was our cassette tape that got us the gigs in Seattle. Our first gig at Rock Candy with Sweetwater, the OK Hotel and the Crocodile. And the list goes on and on. Wow. So the, uh, the, the version that's on the album is that original recording. Yeah, that's from Easter Sunday of 92. That's insane. That's wow. I have heard that of, of other artists kind of saying like, you know, especially over like the pandemic recording or having to record on like a USB mic in their closet or something, and then getting the opportunity to finally go to the studio and not being able to kind of recreate that same emotion and everything with the songs, especially a song that you guys had been playing for such a long time. I could see how that would be, you know, difficult to kind of get the same magic maybe uh, on the record. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's entirely what happened. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then obviously that song becomes this, gigantic hit i mean still to this day massive hit um and what i mean when that happened like what was that moment like or like what was it like kind of seeing these crowds build or was that the first one that really jumped off and got you guys on like on the map as far as uh your eyes on like labels and all these things that were happening in the 90s i don't really know how the attention um got directed towards us i think it was there, I mean, obviously there was so much attention in the city um, mm -hmm. that, you know, if you were, if you were a remotely good band, somebody was paying attention to you. Um, I think it was, we had done a, we'd been asked at the last minute to do the showcase for BMI, um, which was at the off ramp. Um, and they put us on, I think doors were at six, the doors were at seven. They put us on at seven 30 and there were like 10 bands. Um, so they put us on, they gave us 10 minutes or they gave us 15 minutes. Oh, wow. Um, and, and we just destroyed it. I mean, uh, I remember green apple quick step was on that bill. Sweetwater was on that bill. Fire ants was on that bill. Um, uh, blood circus was on the bill. I mean, there were a lot of bands, but they, you know, we were the first band and, and we fucking slayed that show. <laughs> and so we got invited to Los Angeles by EMI to, to, um, play for, Fred Davis, um, who was um, running EMI, Clyde Davis's son, who was running EMI SBK at the time. Um, and we were invited to play the Club Lingerie in Los Angeles. And, and Guy O'Siri from Maverick Records happened to come in as we were playing. And 
And so that's kind of how that all started for us. Wow. That was that a big moment as far as like, you know, having your dad be a musician and mom's a singer and other members of your family are all musical, like to be able to call home or to let everyone know, like, Hey, my band, you know, we got signed. I mean, that must've been such a, a cool experience. It, it was, I mean, mind blowing and, and obviously life changing. And, and um, I mean, the experience of, of, of making a record that, um, you know, I, like I've said it, I'd love to meet the, the person that was the very first person to buy our CD outside of Seattle, you know? Um, yeah. Because it's like, how does it, how does that all happen? And, and how does, you know, some radio station start playing your song change. And, and next thing you know, you come home after being on tour for five months and you've sold 250,000 units and you're selling out three nights at the Paramount in Seattle. I mean, it, it's, it's, it doesn't really make sense. So, you know, um, I think for me, it was, it was just so surreal. Um, it still is, man. I mean, the fact that I just toured for four months with three doors down all summer long and played to, you know, five to 10,000 people a night after 30 years is crazy to me. I, I, I mean, uh, it's, it's just, how do you, how do you even begin to understand what's happening to you as a, as a human being or as a musician, you know, you, you, you know that there are bands that are better than you. You know that there are musicians that are better than you. You know that there are, there are bands that hate you for what's happening with your success from your own hometown. I mean, when I met um, Ben from Grunt Truck, Grunt Truck was my favorite bands of all time. Skin Yard, even better. Um, and, and the singer Ben, I met him after we had told, um, we'd sold out three nights at the Paramount that Christmas of 93. And we did, you know, a huge charity event and, and it was a big deal. And the second night I went down to this place called the off ramp or I'm sorry, the, the frontier room to have a cocktail and with my buddy, Dave Hillis and Dave knew Ben from back in the day. And he's like, Hey, do you want to meet Ben? I said, I'd love to. And I went over and he said, Hey, Ben's this Kevin Candlebox. He's just a big fan and would love to meet you. And, and, um, and he's like, how the hell did you sell out three nights at the Paramount? I said, dude, I have no idea. And he goes, me neither. And he wouldn't even shake my hand. So like, you know, that was the kind of shit we dealt with as a band. Um, and to, you know, till this day, we we still are kind of the second thought of the Seattle rock bands. Wow, yeah, that must have been, uh, yeah, that kind of like don't meet your heroes type thing. I mean, that's good. That'd be devastating, I would imagine. I mean, yeah, it was pretty fucked up. And I mean, it was it was hard for me at the time because you know, yeah, don't meet your heroes. But you know, Candlebox was fuck. We were everywhere. You know, at that point, we were. I think our record was selling like. Uh, I think Christmas of 93, we were selling like 80,000 units a week. And by the time we got to Woodstock, we were selling $175,000. We had or 175,000 units. And we had, you know, the summer number seven record in the country and nobody cared. Why? I mean, that record's like what, four times platinum or something. It's a crazy yeah. how many copies it sold. Um, but then obviously you, you follow up success with, with Lucy. I will say that, uh, I just want to add this because the one of the greatest moments I've ever seen on a television show is when uh, when um, in Eastbound and Down when they sing uh, Far Behind. That's I was dying laughing. I'm like, this song is so good, and the fact that um, you know Kenny Powers in the in the show yes. is is singing at this funeral. I was, I was dying, and <laughs> I just had to bring that up to you just because we I saw, we, uh, yeah. we played Daniel Island in South Carolina where he's from, and we tried to get him to come to the show to, to come out on stage, but he was filming something somewhere else. And, um, 
our tour manager, uh, or our, or actually our management, uh, tour manager, Chris Phillips knows him real well. And, and he's, they spoke on the phone. He's like, dude, I would have loved to have done that, but I'm, I'm, so I think he was in Los Angeles or something, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, my friend called me from Florida. Um, he's like, have you watched Eastbound and Down tonight yet? And I said, no. And he's like, dude, you're going to laugh your ass off. And I was like, what's up? Because I'm not going to tell you. And, and of course, when that scene happened, I, there's part of you that goes, this is amazing. There's other part that's like, are they taking the shit? out of us right now is that, is that what's happening like is they taking the piss out of like what candlebox means you know but either way it's like you know um you're, they're playing your song you know and and right um, and it's all about you know that kind of history of the band and and the longevity and and it is a you know it's a fucking sad song you know it's a mm-hmm. song about death and loss and that sort of thing so yeah i mean yeah 100 percent. it's danny mcbride just is just so goofy obviously in that character that it just made this whole, the whole spectacle of it but it was like yeah i can't imagine not even you didn't even know and then just watching it and being like holy like, holy shit yeah. this is happening yeah. <laughs> if you're an independent artist you may know the struggle of you got these great songs how do I get them in front of record labels, radio DJs, get them on Spotify playlists? How does this happen? Well, friends, this is Adam from Bringing It Backwards, and I'm going to tell you about this amazing website called DropTrack. DropTrack will get you a free press release for your music with the new AI-powered PR agent from DropTrack. DropTrack has helped thousands of independent musicians actually get their music heard by connecting them with record labels, radio DJs, Spotify playlist curators, and now DropTrack is leveraging the power of AI to help you promote your music. It's super simple. All you have to do is upload your song, and then DropTrack will write a professional, personalized press release that describes your music all in just seconds. Then DropTrack helps you share it with the world. You might ask yourself, Adam, why do I need a press release for my music? Well, you need a press release because you need to be able to describe your music in words. You can send the press release to record labels or radio programmers, media outlets, and these industry folk and your fans will actually be able to read about your music before they even press play on the song. This will also get them interested in your music so they want to listen to it. A really good friend of mine's been an independent musician for a number of years, written so many great songs, but he's like, why do I need a press release? So I explained to him the importance of the press release, being able to describe the music. People know what they're getting into before they even press play. He drops his song into drop track. It writes this beautiful press release. Then all he has to do is just send it out. Super simple. What are you waiting for? Get a press release for your own song. Try it now for free at www.droptrack.com. That's droptrack.com. That's D-R-O-P-T-R-A-C-K, droptrack, droptrack.com. Check it out today. Um, Well, I want to talk about this, the new album. I mean, it sounds like this, are you, is this the last album? Yeah, this is it. This is it for me. And then you're just going to. Is it just it for Candlebox or it in general or? Well, as far as, as far as I'm concerned, that's it for Candlebox. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm still doing like, I've got my charity that I'll be doing at the end of the year, which will happen. That's going to be an annual charity event, which I'll play acoustically for um, any. And if anybody ever asks me to do anything, you know, charitable, 
Uh, it won't be with the band. It will be just Kevin Martin of Candlebox. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's it's been a long, uh, somewhat illustrious to, uh, career, and and um, and I'm you know done. I I I I really enjoyed being home with my family during COVID and realized that um, music didn't mean the same to me as it did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you put an album out right after COVID, right? or 2021. Was that an album you guys had worked on? prior to the well, pandemic and how to hold on to it or yeah yeah it was uh-huh. it was done in in um august of uh, august and september of nine of 19 and it was supposed to come out in the spring of 20 so oh, we man. had to wait until uh yeah that that um, september of 21 before we were able to release it okay and then so going into the long goodbye it was prior to even what starting the album you, you knew like okay this is going to be the end yeah, I talked to the guys about it on on the tour um, when we were out on the road in 21 and 22. I was like, listen, I I want to make one last record with you guys. And um, and I want it to be whatever we want it to be. I don't I don't care if it's pop music. I don't care if it's rap. I just whatever we're feeling as a band, you know, um, I mean, that's the thing about having a career for 30 years is that um, I think the reason that we do is because we've never tried to rewrite far behind. We never mm-hmm. tried to rewrite cover me. We never tried to rewrite change. We, you know, we, we always pushed ourselves like Lucy is such a departure from the debut as is happy oh, yeah. pills, as is into the sun, you know, and love stories and other musings. And, you know, all of it's kind of, you know, we always kept pushing and, and, and changing directions and always started to kind of lean a little bit more towards pop in the two, in the you know, early two thousands and stuff. But um, you know, I, I, like I said earlier, my songwriting style is, is of the ilk where I love those kind of ear candy chords and, um, and I love popular music, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Taylor Swift. I love bleachers. I love, I love war on drugs. <laughs> you know I mean? I, 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 I love the national. I, I love Lana Del Rey. I love, um, you know, uh, Grace Potter, you know I mean? I, I, I love, uh, nothing but thieves. I I really really admire that kind of popular songwriting, and um, and so I I think that's why Candlebox has been able to sustain themselves for thirty years is because we continue to push that envelope. Yeah, and you haven't like yeah exactly you haven't written the same album. You weren't just trying to rewrite Far Behind like you just said. I mean yeah. that that is the it's that is amazing to see. I mean the, the longevity of the band, the amount of albums you guys have put out. And I love this new album. I did see that you worked with Don Miggs on the album. Yeah, yeah. Don's uh, one of my best friends. And and um, we actually have a side project called um, Future Trash, which we do. Um, uh, and and he's been the producer on that. So I asked him actually to produce the album because I, I love where Don comes from creatively and artistically. And, and I wanted to give him an opportunity to work with a band that had sold millions of records, not only for his own, you know, um, feather in his cap, but for a little bit of um, acknowledgement and respect in, in this world. Cause he's trying to, you know, break into the world of being, uh, you know, a, a major producer. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, you got to give one another a shot at that. That's awesome. Yeah. I had him on this podcast before for a whole damn mess when the, yeah. the, he had that band start. Uh, that's cool. So you um, like, did you record that in Nashville then the album? Yeah. This house. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, was it difficult? I mean, knowing that this is the, was the final record, was it hard to kind of, pick and choose what songs you guys were going to do or even probably write to know, okay, this is going to be the it, or was it a pretty collective decisions on, on all the songs? Like, can you tell me about the album? Like, as far as that goes. 
Yeah, well, we started writing um, when we were on tour last spring. So um, Island and Brian and I and Adam just kind of started mucking around with some stuff, some ideas that we had. Um, Elegante was actually a song that we wrote at a sound check in Savannah, Georgia. Um, and yeah, um, it's, it's what we do a lot of times is like we record our sound checks and, and, um, and we just, we, we have a lot of fun as a band. We don't, um, we don't mince words. We don't, you know, um, we don't worry about, you know, ego or parts like that. It's just like, that's not going to work. Let's move on, you know, and, and sound check that song Elegante happened really quick. So I knew that we, I knew that as a five piece that we were moving in a right, in a very good direction. So I was like, listen, we should book some time and we have two, two months off September and October. We should book some time, uh, East coast and West coast. Cause Island and BJ, um, both of them at the time were living in Baltimore and, um, Brian lives in Philly and Adam and I live in Los Angeles. So, mm-hmm. um, I said, let's do an East coast writing session and we'll do a West coast writing session. So we did, um, the studio in Baltimore, which we wrote 12 songs in three days, three or four days. Wow. We recorded those. And then um, a month later, we were in L.A. at Don's other studio here um, where he has uh, Lala Mansion, Los Angeles. Um, we wrote um, 10 songs in, in four days. And so we had, yeah, we had 22 pieces to choose from. When the vinyl comes out, there'll be three extra songs on the album. Um, oh, rad. But, but it really was about um, whittling it down. And, and I wanted to bookend my career. So that's why there's only 10 songs on this record and, and starting with punks and ending with hourglass is kind of, you know, that's my career in a nutshell. Uh, everything that happens in the middle is, is, is life as I know it. And, um, and as I've known it. So um, that's why it's called a long goodbye. I've been, I've been considering this for a long, long time of wrapping things up and, you know, as, as much fun as I've had as a touring musician um, and as a, and as a record maker and, and, and recording artist, um, it, it pales in comparison to being a father to my son, Jasper, and a husband to my wife, Natalie, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a very strange emotion and, and, um, you know, standing on stage and singing far behind, you know, for the last time in Tulsa the other night, uh, that's the last time I'll ever sing that song in Tulsa, you know, with my band. Um, it was a bittersweet ending to, a somewhat confusing um, career for me. And, um, and so I, I think making this album was my way of really kind of dealing with those emotions that I knew I was going to experience um, standing on stage for the very last time in, you know, in Fort Lauderdale or, or Tulsa, Oklahoma or Chicago, Illinois or whatever, you know, every single one of these shows we had this summer, I had that moment where, you know, this is, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I'm really going to miss this, you know, sort of thing. And, um, but then, you know, it's, you come home and you realize that you're doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine. I don't know yeah, how to explain it, you know? Yeah. It's like, an, yeah. And it's like almost at, at the end of every show, it had to be an emotional moment, obviously. You're yeah. Like, okay, this is yeah. the last time I'm going to be playing whatever, you know, fill in the blank for city with this band. And then it, come the last day of the tour you're like oh, well that's you know wow but then you like you said you come home to your family and you're like well you know this is what it what's what it's all about for me now. um yeah, and i love I mean, it I'm, I'm a, no go sorry ahead. go ahead no i didn't want to I was you, say, you just i still have like still have south america you know coming up um and then we we're we've just booked four shows in australia in january so i still have a little bit of touring to do 
but you know, for the states, for the states, it's done. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, I think that's cool that you, you know, you bookended this album, especially finding out, you know, your story earlier and just how you were in a punk band. Right. I mean, then punks is the first song on the record and then going through to, to Hourglass and how it it does wrap up. Was it when you when you picked the 10 tracks and then adding the three for the vinyl, uh, were those like selecting the, you know, the bonus ones? Was that like, oh, these were like three that we I really wanted on it, but it didn't really make sense. But, you know, as far as the record flew, uh, you know, how the flow went or. Yeah, yeah. The sequencing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sequencing. That's really what it was. Yeah. The sequencing, the, the three songs were not going to work with the sequencing that I wanted. Um, so we and of course, you know, with vinyl, it doesn't really matter because, you know, some people play the second side. Some people go. Yeah, flip side, it over. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Uh, but when it comes to a CD or streaming, you know, that that flow is is everything. And it was really important that um, the story is told the way it's told. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Kevin, for doing this, man. Uh, I'm a huge fan of yours and in the band. And uh, it's so cool uh, to, to to hear how this all, you know, happened. And, and congratulations on, you know, 30 years as a band. Not many people can say that. Not many bands, obviously, are, are around yeah. with that with the longevity that you guys have had. Um, and uh, it's great to hear that you're going to be still doing, you know, your own stuff as far as acoustic and, uh, but, and same with those other projects, like the project you have with Don and, and are you keeping those going or is it basically just kind of your solo thing now? No, I think I'm, I think I'm, I don't think I'm going to make any more records. Um, I don't oh, really wow. have any desire to go into the studio and record anymore. Um, it's really just about, you know, if, if somebody wants me to play a charity show, I'll do that, but that's pretty much the extent of it. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's I mean, wow. That's an incredible, incredible career that you've had, Kevin. Thank you again so Thanks. much. I have, I have one more quick question for you before I let you go. I want to know, uh, throughout the, the 30 plus years of doing this, uh, if somebody asked you for some advice, do you have any advice for an aspiring musician or an artist that was looking to cut, you know, into this industry? Well, you, I mean, you have to be completely honest with yourself um, and you have to be completely honest with the music that you're producing. Um, if, if you, if you find that you're, you know, pulling too much from, you know, your, the things that you listen to, if you're copying, you know, Nickelback or something like that, you know, or the Foo Fighters, um, that's not really being true to the music. I mean, you have to create what, what you have to create and you have to be 100% committed to it. Um, it's, you know, there are decisions we've made as a band that were probably not good decisions, but we were fucking committed to them, you know? And, um, and it's, it's what led me to where I'm at. Now, listen, I don't, I would not want to be starting a new band and, right now at all um i mean it's next to impossible to get anybody to pay attention there's no label that's going to give you any money unless you've got you know TikTok bullshit going on and your socials on instagram they don't do any work labels don't do any work so again it's left to the artist to to produce what they need for their career and um it's a difficult thing to do so com commitment is is the, of the utmost importance and getting out and playing every single place all the time, you know, getting out of your own city, getting out of your comfort zone, driving to, if you're from Washington state, driving over to Idaho to play shows, driving over to Montana to play shows, going up to Canada to play shows, get out there and play for people, you know, and, and be committed to that show, you know, lose yourself in the music in the moment, you know, what exactly what Eminem says, if you're not doing that, everybody can smell bullshit from a mile away. 